Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, let's talk space now. We're talking outer space. Just in the last month, we've seen Sir Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos rocket into space, continuing the commercialization, if you will, of outer space. Let's get a sense of where we're going forward. John Wensveen, Executive Director of the Allen B. LeVan NSU Broward Center of Innovation, joins us. John, give us a sense here. You know, when I was a kid, it was all about the Apollo uh, program and, and NASA and, you know, the U.S. government. Talk to us about, is the future of space innovation is it no longer NASA? Is it with billionaire entrepreneurs? Well, good morning, and thanks for having me. I'm, I'm actually glad that you mentioned uh, the Apollo program because we recently recruited uh, Buzz uh, Aldrin's son, Andrew Aldrin, who's ah. the director of our new uh, space program called Level 5 Space Talk to support these entrepreneurial uh, opportunities. But to really answer your question, there's never been a more opportune time for entrepreneurs to launch and scale companies in the space sector. And it's not the old government model of doing anything. It's really moving into the privatization and the commercialization of space through public-private partnerships and more private sector um, support. And the barriers of entry are coming down, and the technological advances that are creating uh, expectations for the future are much more cost-effective than they've ever been. They're still high, but they're certainly coming down, which really leads to increased private investment by investors who are brand new to the space sector. And the recent uh, successes, as you mentioned, with SpaceX and Virgin Galactic and Blue uh, Origin are really great examples. Well, but the point and is, it's not just, John, about, about it's not just about billionaires, right? Because we talked to so many people, some of them young you know, Gen Z startup people who are getting into the space business because not everybody has to do the launch, right? There's so many other aspects. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. And and the, the future of space isn't the big names and brands that you know. It's it's the people that are behind it. So you're these early stage entrepreneurs that are focused on technology development, whether it's the hardware side or the software side, they're in two evolving worlds. And the hardware we often refer to as the vehicle uh, and the satellites, as an example, but on the hardware side, it's all around data and how you use data in space for the betterment of Earth or for inner and outer space um, applications. And it's really provided opportunities for anybody, no matter what your economic status is. If you've got a great idea that's serving a need for now and the future, uh, this is the time to be able to be focusing on that. Is there, uh, is there a profit angle here at all, John? I mean, I, you know, I look at Sir Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos, and I'm not sure they're really focused on making money here, given their status. Is there a belief that there is a profit model in the commercialization of space? Well, I think when you're associating these these big names that are that are internationally known, they're making headlines, and what they're doing is they're bringing more awareness to the opportunities associated with space. And I would say that profit is not the number one objective; it's about breaking down the barriers so that we can get to that you know, next level. the The future of the entrepreneur, though, is about profit, and these start these small companies that are creating concepts and, and inventions that support the space sector, whether it's in the private or public sector, 
their goal at the end of the day is to be able to make money and scale these businesses. And there's more infrastructure that's now available to be able to do that than there's ever been before. But the, it's, the, it's the names that we're not aware of that are going to be successful that are the ones that are profiting as they support these bigger initiatives. And I think it's really important to focus on the big names like the NASA's of the world and the Branson's and the Bezos as examples. But what's happening is the space agencies around the world are moving more to the private sector in terms of support where they're establishing very defined verticals of need, and then you market those needs and you find the smaller entrepreneur that can cater to the development of the inventions and technologies for those needs, and then they're co-funded, um, in many cases will be acquired within those space agencies, but they're, they're generating a profit at the end of the day. It's also, I mean, there's so many other angles besides the launch, and I, I said it already, but I think it's important to, to point out. Look, Netflix is producing a documentary um, where SpaceX is going to put four civilians into orbit, and that's next month. I mean, that just blows my mind. <laughs> I know that media is not your wheelhouse. I bring it up because it is Paul's wheelhouse. But w what are the other business lines, you think, John, that are going to be profitable soon? Well, I think when you break it back down into the hardware and the software side, the hardware is a little bit more difficult. That's the space vehicles and the satellites that I previously mentioned. That's very difficult because of the high cost of putting that together. The profitable side of the business is the low-hanging fruit, as I'm calling it, is the software. It's the data. It's a, it's a uniquely feasible space product. And if you know how to collect it and analyze it and integrate it and then distribute that into different forms of technologies, that's truly um, the future. And that can be done anywhere in the world. It has, doesn't have to be in a, in a space and environment, if you will. And there are multiple industries that are currently creating things that may not even recognize that they're directly supporting space or have the potential to directly support space. But when you think about evolving themes in this, in this emerging uh, world in which we live around acceleration and disruption, it's things like cybersecurity or agriculture, uh, marine industries, telecommunications, uh, manufacturing and advanced manufacturing, even smart city development and design for the future, as well as the creation of new space services that don't even exist today. So we have to create a whole world that supports everything that happens up in inner, in, in outer space. So there really isn't an industry that hmm. can't connect to space in a direct or indirect way. All right, John, great having you. Um, John Vensveen is... I think uh, internationally known expert on air transport. He wrote Air Transportation and Management Perspective and Wheels Up Airline Business Plan Development. So he really knows, you know, not only how these businesses work, but how they can turn a profit. John, thanks very much for joining us. Let's get uh, back to the markets right now and specifically to Disney earnings coming out after the bell today. Kevin Neer joins us, Equity Research Associate at Bloomberg Intelligence. He is live. Are you live in the studio? Yes, Paul? Just good morning. How All are right, you? All right, cool. So you're with, I mean, the two guys at the company who probably know more about Disney than anyone else, save possibly David Weston, because I think he used to work, <laughs> work there. Right. Work there. Um, Absolutely. What do we expect? Uh, we've been talking a lot about the parks, but there's also a lot going on in their media business. And, you know, you've got the TV, you've got the sports. What, what, what's the highlights? Definitely, definitely. Thank you so much again for having me. Uh, so for us, for Disney earnings, you know, we're looking at three key things. One is the an update on the, on the streaming subscriber story. Obviously, Disney Plus being sort of the most imp important product on that side, but Hulu, ESPN Plus, also important. Uh, next, we're going to be looking for an update on the box office, on their distribution side. Uh, you know, Disney has been really holding their cards close to their chest as opposed to some of the other studios. 
Um, and then lastly, as you, as you mentioned, we're going to be looking for commentary on the theme parks business. Uh, we're expecting that this, this past quarter, fiscal 3Q, will be their first uh, profit in that business since last year, since obviously the virus shut down that side of the business. Um, but that said, you know, rising Delta cases are something that we're looking at very closely and, uh, and we're going to be looking for commentary on their, on their bookings going forward. So what do we know on the theme park business? Because it's, you know, it's a business that a lot of people overlook because they look at the streaming business or they look at ESPN. But the parks and resorts, quarter after quarter, A, it's a big business, and B, it grows double-digit earnings every quarter. But I'm really concerned about this Delta variant and impact it could have in Florida, in California, and on their international things. Have they given any indication to how things may be trending? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So that's exactly what we're going to be looking for. And uh, and again, you bring up a great point. Um, you know, as far as the international side, they're still a little bit further behind than obviously on the domestic side. Uh, they just had to reinstate, uh, obviously wearing masks in in both those parks, Disney World and in Disneyland, um, which you know, again, you know, that's 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 writing on the wall. I think consumers really see that. Um, there's been no mention on, you know, you know, vaccine mandates as far as that. We think it's unlikely that they will mandate vaccinations considering just how their, uh, how their uh, clientele really skews, you know, much younger. Obviously, yep. the children under 12 haven't been approved yet. Um, but that said, you're, you're, you're exactly to your point. No, to the, well, and the, you'd be turning away so many people. So many Americans are vaccine hesitant, I guess, is the politically correct way to put it now. But Exactly anti-vaxxers and you don't want to lose those dollars do you exactly exactly so that that remains a threat you know near term it, it's it's just very unclear at this point how how delta is going to shake out you know we're, we're still waiting on that ft fda mandate for for the vaccine which should theoretically change things i guess either way the streaming business is good i just wonder how you differentiate because you you mentioned they've got disney plus hulu uh espn and there's so many other offerings out there with um, Netflix and Apple TV, and I mean, I'm so I'm subscribed to PGA. <laughs> I'm subscribed to MLB. Like, uh, the the bills are higher than my cable box used to cost. Right, right. No, that's 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 exactly right. Uh, and just to contextualize this a little bit, what we've seen so far, you know, this past quarter was really a mixed bag on the streaming side. You know, this is domestic, international. Again, is is a different story. But uh, you know, Netflix posted really, really some some weak results. They actually posted a a loss domestically in in U.S. and Canada on the subscriber side. Stars, which is a premium SVOD service owned uh, uh, by Lionsgate, they, they saw a similar trend losing subscribers domestically. And that's really all, all based on weaker content slates. And meanwhile, exactly to your point, some of those newer services, Paramount Plus, HBO Max, Discovery Plus, they're posting gains, you know, at or above expectations. And then, you know, part of that is, is price promotions. Part of that is higher marketing spends for those, those newer services. Um, but what we're really seeing now is that, you know, what we like to say is, is the streaming wars have really started. You know, they've really started now. We've been talking about these streaming wars for a while, um, but it, it's, it's gotten real just this past quarter. And the expectation is that, you know, Netflix, obviously, they're the big dog, but Disney has established itself as a solid number two. So we'll, have to, we'll take a look at those earnings coming out after the close tonight. Kevin Neer joins us. He is Equity Research Associate at Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. He works with the great Geetha Ranganathan, who is also media analyst, and she covers some of the tech stuff as well. So another generation, man, of equity research covering the media sector coming up for Bloomberg Intelligence. Kevin Neer joining us here. Now I want to get over to Greg Hahn. He is the Chief Investment Officer at Winthrop Capital Management. And I want to kick it off with an inflation question, question Greg. Um, Jarrett was just talking about the price of oil. We know the president wants the price at the pumps to come down, even if the IEA says demand is going to get crimped. 
are you a believer in uh, continuous inflation or is it transitory? So right, right now, the way that monetary policy is working is we actually think that it's transitory, whatever we define, however we define transitory. Uh, inflation is going to be here a little bit longer than what the uh, Fed would want us to think just because of the supply chain dislocations and just corporate incentives to keep prices up. Um, but as long as excess reserves are parked on the balance sheet of the Fed and it's not, they're not leaking into the financial system, I think the Fed's got a good shot at controlling the, the rate of inflation. Hey, Greg, you know, I look at the 10-year here trading at 1.35%, and I, I got to just step back and say, you know, I've been an equity guy my entire career, and thank goodness, because I have no idea if I were a fixed-income <laughs> investor where I would go today for any yield or return. What are these people doing all day? I mean, how do you generate return with the 10-year at 1.35%? Right. So so it's, it's pretty much known that uh, bond investors can suck the fun out of the room faster than anybody. <laughs> So the bond the bond world right now, if you're investing in public publicly traded bonds, it's a very, very difficult environment. Um, and the institutional side, in the private credit space, there are more opportunities to earn uh, uh, yield, and, but those are coming down. Those would include CLOs and commercial mortgage loans. But uh, there are ways for individual investors to capture the CLO investment or the bank through um, some mutual funds and ETFs. So those obviously have a higher risk associated with them different liquidity issues but that is the one of the answers to where do you get where do you get yield and the other is leverage uh and the closed end fund provides that uh, i mean the other answer that howard marks gave us is that it's just tough <laughs> yeah. you know it's not it's There's not no easy question. he said um <laughs> people are happy with 300 he's happy with 300 basis points on high yield debt that's that's enough um, to he thinks cover the costs or the risk of a, a default. And I thought that was amazing when he told Eric Shasker that um, he said people that need seven percent he he doesn't know what to do. Of course he's a right. distressed guy. Um, yep. uh, what about in stocks? I, I, every time I think that we can't possibly run any higher than this, and valuations look pretty full, um, we do. And how much further can we go? So. Here's, so so the general rule of thumb in our world, this is the Winthrop world, is that as long as we have aggressive monetary policy and we have aggressive fiscal policy, which we have both right now, um, there's a safety net on, on, on asset prices. So um, that can be a catalyst for, for stocks to go higher. We are very, very concerned about the market right now. And the reason is there's, a, there's kind of a crossroads that are taking place. The Fed um, is going to start to remove its stimulus, which means that the interest rates naturally will drift higher. And then the question becomes, how will the stock market handle that at a time when the earnings comparisons, earning comps year over year are going to, we're not going to have this favorable earnings comp coming out of the pandemic. They're going to, we're going to see earnings growth start to slow. So it's going to be a challenge for equity investors going forward. And Greg, it's interesting. We, earlier this week, Tom Keen and I had on Doug Cass from Seabreeze Partners, Legendary Investors, and he's out with a note, uh, I think on Tuesday, basic and entitled "Sell Stocks Now," basically taking some of the concerns that you just highlighted and said they're more than concerns; they're coming, and that's not good for equity markets. But that is very much the contrarian view out here, as far as I can tell. That's mm -hmm. it's it is tough. I mean, we're. We're ones to stay invested. We're not ones to tr try to time the market. But yep. 
the the underlying theme here, that the challenge that we have is that we, we in our world we recognize the structure of the capital markets has changed. And, and you sort of touched on it with this idea on the fixed income side is where do investors go? The consequence of these Fed policies has been that us savers, people that are looking at retirement or in retirement, it's very difficult to earn a, uh, an income stream in retirement to support our lifestyle. We have to look at capital gains to do that. So it's it's a challenge that, um, you know, it's just it's just a challenge. Thank goodness we have Social Security, right? <laughs> well, yeah, and that, but but you, we just I was to being be, sarcastic. I don't know. Sometimes my sarcasm doesn't read on radio <laughs> or on TV. Yeah, but I I meant like it's not enough. Yeah, but in the in the equity markets. We're not ones that there are there are places to go, and I'm one of those that that is looking seriously at China, because of what's happened there. Is there's one we think there's just a tremendous buying opportunity. It is not a place to run from. It's a place to really study and look into that their form of capitalism, competing alongside Western capitalism, is is, is going to be a survivor over the next ten years. And there's some cheap stocks there. But you look there just for uh, do you look for capital appreciation or do you look for returns? Uh, well, that's for, it's it's capital appreciation. They're not, yeah. the, the income stream is not not competitive. Yeah, it's it's a little scary. As Bloomberg had a story, I think yesterday, just highlighting how many millions of people in America are going to be are turning sixty five, and you know if you retire at sixty five, my parents are retiring. They're seventy, and they're still going to live another twenty or thirty years, which I'm happy about, <laughs> but it's expensive. And especially if you get hit with something like Alzheimer's or, you know, it's it's a horrible thing to think about, but it's just so expensive, health care, just bringing in a, a, a professionals or putting them in a home. It's just you've got to be prepared, and I think a lot of people are a little underprepared. Greg, great having you on the program. Greg Hahn, Chief Investment Officer at Winthrop Capital Management. Ernesto Ramos, Chief Investment Officer for the U.S. for BMO Global Asset Management. He joins us on the phone from Chicago. Ernesto, we're basically through this uh, second quarter earnings period. We've got Disney after the close tonight. But really, really impressive earnings growth. Was that enough for those who feel like this market's expensive and that's a reason to maybe be cautious? Well, there's certainly been incredible earnings growth, as you point out. Uh, I clearly all in the price as we speak. And the question is, what's the earnings growth going to be look, looking like going forward? And, and that's, a, that's a clear, that's a question that doesn't have a clear answer. Uh, the only thing that we think is clear is that it's not going to be as strong as it has been uh, for the last 12 months. I mean, the earnings over the last 12 months for the S&P 500 up 34%. I don't think any analyst out there has uh, that kind of number for for the for the next 12 months uh, so we think that the, the market is a bit richly valued it might need to take a breather here and that's why we favor higher quality stocks that are not very attractive very richly valued uh what we call quality value stocks yeah uh, i'm looking at we, um on the bloomberg ernesto you can type an index and then ge go which allows you to graph a number of things, but I put up, for example, trailing P.E. Right now we're at 27 on the S&P 500. We were at the beginning of the year um, up around 33. So the earnings have done a lot to bring that down. But if you look at um, the forward P.E. estimates, 
we're trading around 22 and we had been at the high at the end of last year up around 27. What do you think fair value is? Well, with the, with the, with the kind of monetary policy and the interest rates where they are, I, I think the market can handle, the, you know, 21, 22, but it's going to need earnings growth to, to get uh, further ahead. And right now, if you look at about uh, the consensus, they're pricing in about, or they're looking for twenty for 2022 earnings to come in at about plus 9% for where 2021 will come in. And so I think uh, the market doesn't have a lot of room to go with 9% earnings growth, maybe a couple of percent higher from where it is now. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see what, what gives. But specifically what we're looking to do in our portfolios is, is tilt a little bit away from, from growth to, to value because we see the, 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 the cycle, the economic cycle is really recovering strongly uh, and, and, uh, and, and, and also tilt a little bit towards smaller cap. So smaller cap value over large cap growth, but not dramatically, just just a little bit, just so that you get a little bit more exposure to, to sectors that are more uh, tied to the economic cycle here. I tell you, of the many reasons I like working with Matt Miller is his knowledge of Bloomberg functionality is amazing. That GE function, I did not <laughs> know it, and I've been here 12 years. GE is, is great. That's an that awesome screen. one. Thank you for that. So Ernesto, you know, what are some of the sectors that you guys are working on these days? I mean, again, we just came through earnings. We got some more information about how companies are thinking about their businesses going forward. Are there some sectors that you guys are doing some extra work on these days? Well, we, we really are more focused on the companies at, 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 the, at the bottom up level. So companies like AutoZone, companies like Carlite Roofing. AutoZone is, 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 is a you know, self-repair type uh, shop where people that uh, want to fix their own cars go buy parts and, and whatnot. Uh, Carlite Roofing, which is tied to the recovery in, in the housing sector and people uh, – fixing their, their houses up and also it's also tried a little, tied a little bit to infrastructure growth and and uh, companies like um, like Allstate which is an insurer not not too many people will come on shows and talk about insurance but uh, it's a company that's doing very well and these are the one thing that characterizes them for example Allstate trades at like eight and a half times 2021 earnings which is uh, pretty pretty ridiculously cheap um, but the, the thing that all of these companies have in common is that they don't trade at very expensive valuations. And, and that's the one thing we're making sure in our portfolios, even in our growth portfolios, we're not overpaying for any one stock because uh, at these levels of valuation, the biggest risk in the market right now is, is a, a, a valuation risk and that we have a correction just because the market is so richly valued. What are the, you think, the best sectors where we can find how do you screen for value stocks uh industrials is one financials is another uh materials is another uh, you know those are the, the traditional value sectors uh but uh, but there's companies uh, in 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 uh in consumer discretionary for example uh autozone which which i mentioned already that that are that are attractively valued so you really have to go sector by sector. Technology in general is going to be richly valued, but you're going to find 
companies here and there that are doing very well and not trading uh, at very high valuations. So it's really a, a question of focusing on the companies themselves and their individual prospects rather than to make uh, broad-based uh, sector uh, or industry calls. Uh, it's just all about the companies. And, and our approach really measures uh, the, the, the valuation, of course, is very important, but profitability, mm. quality, growth yep. of every company, as well as market sentiment, and we aggregate a bunch of yeah. metrics on all of these to come up with a with a short list that then yeah. we do a lot of fundamental. All right, Ernesto, thanks very much. Ernesto Ramos from BMO. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.